the 10th installment of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. As most of you know, episode 10 will not be available for viewing until the new year on January 7th. But during this hiatus for the show, as promised, we will provide three special podcasts to provide a deeper dive into the series and its context within the Star Trek universe. For today's episode, we viewed all nine episodes once more to look for themes that bear a closer look. So one of the things that you should probably recognize is that in previous Star Trek shows, that even from the original series, the majority of the episodes, in fact, the majority of the drama has been centered around a Troika characters, three characters in particular. Not to say that the other characters didn't get some episodes, but that they were been, but the majority of the drama is targeted towards three characters. With the original series, it's obviously Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. In Next Generation, it eventually evolves into Picard, Data, and Worf. In Deep Space Nine, you have Cisco, Odo, and Worf again. And then um, in Voyager, which is an odd one, it starts out initially be looking at if it's going to be Janeway, Chakotay, and Paris, but it evolves over time into being Janeway, the holographic doctor, and um, Seven and Nine. And then with Enterprise, you have Archer, T'Pol, and Tucker. And with with Discovery, it in these nine episodes, it appears that what we've got as our tr- new Troika is Burnham, Lorca, and Ash Tyler, who we believe is actually Vok, the Klingon um, torchbearer for Takuvma. The difference between Discovery and the other shows really is Michael. Uh, she's the mutineer and the one crew member with no rank. And it appears that um, that the shows are involving, evolving around her as the anchor, unlike the other series right. of Star Trek, in right. which it's always the captain right. who is the anchor. Well, they, that's intentional. In fact, they said that early on, that the show was going to be focused on uh, the first officer as opposed to a captain. So now let's look at some of the commonalities and links between the Troika members of Discovery. So, uh, Gary, why don't you talk about the first one? Have a couple of um, similar traits. And specifically, they all appear to be outsiders, people who don't necessarily fit into the systems that, in which they are working. Also, they all seem to be survivors, people who are able to be put into extreme circumstances, and yet they have the cap- capacity of actually being able to come out of them. Now let's look at the, the three of them. Let's start off with Lorca. Captain Gabriel Lorca is presented uh, to us as the lone survivor of the USS Bernan, who we find out was his last co- commission ship prior to taking over Discovery. We also find out that he is the reason why the Bernan no longer exists. They were in a battle early in the Klingon Federation War where they were destroyed, and, as oppo- and they were destroyed actually by Lorca. And as opposed to putting them in a situation where his crew would be tortured by Klingons, he instead blows the ship, although he's able to get off. We also find out that that's the time when he has his eye injury, which has made him very sensitive to uh, light. With Burnin, the second character, she, as we have heard repeatedly, is the only mutineer to have ever been um, tried and convicted in the Federation. Uh, Starfleet has never had anybody like that. She's responsible for over 8,000 crew members perishing she she's perceived and yet she was able to survive the battle at the binary stars in um episode seven she says but i fear my personal history 
interferes with my ability to forge relationships. I am amongst the others, but apart. And we see that evident in a number of the episodes prior to the last two or three, where she seems to be in parallel to characters, but she's not necessarily an aspect or, or involved in them. And this is most evident in the party that they're having where she's in the room but she's not enjoying she's not a part of those festivities um, background of all three is shrouded in some form of mystery well first talk about tyler before you okay go. all right all right okay i forgot tyler so tyler reason why i have some problem with this one is because what we know of tyler is questioned and the more evidence that we've seen about his background, we've become more concerned. If if it turns out that what we suspect is true, that he is actually the albino Klingon Vok, it, it'll probably make more sense because we've seen how, in the case of Vok, he was also seen as an outsider. He was ostracized by the other Klingons as a mutate, uh, someone who was less than... Unnatural. Uh, and, and unnatural, right. And in fact, he's constantly being t- um, referred to as son of none. He has no lineage to himself. He's an aberration. Um, as And as Tyler, he claims to have been sur- uh, the survivor of the USS Jaeger, which was at the battle at the Binary Stars. But it doesn't seem from the, what we saw that there was any... S- any capturing of any cling by any Klingons of any Federation members, so because the ships just all disappear, and they don't seem to catch anybody. So we're not sure how. At what point was he captured and put in prison? Because that's from that moment to when he meets Lorca, he supposedly has been in jail for seven months and tortured all during that time. Yeah, and we also, again, we know that that can't be true because uh, because Laurel uh, was on the, sarco- not the, sarco- the sarcophagus for six months. Right. And so there's no way she could have been on that prison ship, too, for right. six uh, for, for all that time. Right. And uh, the other thing is, is that, uh, remember that Takuvma, when, after the Klingons seemingly had won the Battle of the Binary Stars, he sends out a broadcast that, oh, we're going to leave the rest of you alive. Anybody who survived, anybody right. on the Federation side who survived, we want you to be a witness right. and tell everybody what happened. Right. You know, so it's kind of this shock and awe. And exactly. you've got to have some people left to, um, to, um, to be able to tell what happened. Exactly. And so, you know, so as Gary said, there's really no evidence that they actually took prisoners. Right. There there there's no evidence at all that they captured any prisoners of war and then put them in in on a ship that just happened to be traipsing around in 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 the space. Right. So that they could catch they could catch Lorca. Right. right. It's just a little the, the circumstances are a little too convenient. Right. The way they play out. Yes, yes. So um, I want to talk a little bit about another trait, and that is the background of all three is really shrouded in mystery. And they seem to have no close allies on the ship when they come onto the ship. So, for instance, with Burnham, uh, she spent uh, her formative years on Vulcan. And this is a world that few other humans have had the opportunity to experience in depth. I mean, in fact, the only one we know at this time only other human at this time who has had that experience would be Amanda. Right. And then, um, and then Lorca, uh, you know, again, we wonder why was he given the command of the discovery, even right. though it's a science ship, right. it's an important science ship. This, right. the Federation was resting his hope on what the discovery in the Glen were doing as far as the sport technology. And so this was quite a responsibility. So what explanation did he give to satisfy Starfleet command that, that, that would make them want to give him another command, especially a command of this importance that has such wide ranging discretionary power. Right. 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 I mean, because here you have a man who has 
openly admitted to having destroyed his former ship and the entire crew with it. And then almost immediately he's giving a new commission, a new crew that's in, that's a critical aspect to the technology that, that the Federation is trying to develop to actually you know wage the war and win it. Why would you pick this guy as the guy and then give him, the, like you said, these broad discretionary powers, as he describes them, to be able to do things as he will? I mean, why? Why would that happen? And it also seems that no one on the Discovery seems to have known Lorca before he took command. Right. Uh, now, and we don't even know if they're aware of the fact that he destroyed his ship. It could be something that really only the high command understands right, right. that that happened. And we know uh, we know that Mud knows, uh, but Mud knows a lot of different things. Okay, right. he keeps his, as they say, keeps his ear pretty close to the ground. So any kind of you know dirt or muck, he would know. But you know, again, we're not really sure if the crew actually knows that he's the one who destroyed his other ship yeah, the, with, with everybody on it. Early on, and, and the only other crew member on the Discovery that Lorca seems to have any kind of relationship with is Landry, his chief of, chief security officer, who is killed the episode after we were introduced to her. That's right. You know? That's right. So so we don't know if she knew him before right, right, the right, discovery right, right, or right. what. All we know is that he says, well, we've been through a lot together. Right. You know, so, so we don't know how far that goes. Only Admiral Cornwell, who obviously is not, you know, a crew member of the Discovery, but only she expressed a long-time association with him. However, in the episode uh, Lethe... She said, he seems different. She right. told him, right. he seems different than the way she remembered him. Right. And she doesn't know whether that's attributed to his torture that he, he, he was inflicted when he was captured by the Klingons or a result of the trauma of having killed his, you know, take, destroyed his ship, the, the Bernan. She just knows that prior to the beginning of this war, Lorca was a different person. That's right. So she, so she's just concerned about how he's dealing with the trauma and the stress that he's been underneath. That's right. And the only the other person we want to talk about in this case is Tyler. It seems that no one on this ship seems to have prior knowledge of him. But this could be logical too. If you think about the fact that, again, this is a scientific ship, it could have been that uh, this Ash Tyler was trained to be more of a military person on a, and, you know, may have been assigned to more of a military sh uh, ship. And so that's why he really, you know, he didn't uh, have opportunity to, to uh, run across these other people. Well, Lorca has done some investigation on Tyler. He did find his Starfleet record. He did realize he and it did identify that he was last stationed on the he was last assigned to the Jaeger. Mm -hmm. And the Jaeger was, if you remember, the Jaeger was the ship that the Admiral who was killed at the Battle of the Binaries was commanding. In fact, it's that's the one that gets severed in two by the decloaked Klingon ship that destroys it in, mm. in this in Battle at the Binary Stars, the second episode. So there is evidence that he was a member of that crew, that there was an Ash Tyler on that ship. Right, right. There is evidence that, but what I'm saying is that nobody on uh, the Discovery... Has any knowledge is, of him. Of him, right. Right, right. Well, you know, at least so far. Right. At least so far. Okay. Right. Okay, so Lorca personally chooses both Burnin and Tyler to put, put into prominent positions. He offers uh, Burnin, the mutineer, the position of being a science specialist, and he entices her by talking about the power of exploration, talk about the sense of discovery, about what they are capable of doing. He shows her the spore drive and the capacity of what it can do by showing her in several different locations where they could go in in an instant. 
So he, he entices her with the possibilities of the scientific exploration part of Starfleet as opposed to the militaristic part. But he, he makes it clear that they need this drive to also wage the war. And we see him do this later on when he's t- talking to Stamets mm-hmm. in the last episode. Um, he also, in, in, in fact, in spite of her position of being a mutineer, in spite of the reservations that his superiors, specifically Admiral Cornwell, has about her being put into a position of, and how, the impact it would have on the morale of the rest of the Discovery crew, Lorca insists on doing this as if he knows he needs her for some specific reason. She is presented, at least by the way, he, the, how he emphasis, puts an emphasis on her as somebody that um, has some interest for him. Uh, with Tyler, you have... You know, once again, he's put into a prominent position. He's made, he's made the chief security officer of the Discovery, in place of Landry, who was killed by the Tardigrade. Um, he, in spite of the fact that he's also been in seven months uh, torture with the Klingons, supposedly, supposed, yes, yeah, yeah, that basically he's a prisoner of war who's been tortured for seven months. That's the guy you put in charge of the guns. Right. That, right. That makes no sense. It, does, right. it doesn't seem logical, and yet he does it, and he and and Tyler does stand up effectively in the position. He shows through performance that he's capable of doing it. But the only person who calls him out on this again is Cornwell, who questions these decisions that Lorca is making, in light of the circumstances that these people have have been under and how they affect the effectiveness of the discovery being able to follow through. In fact, Lorca's rationale um, comes out in episode four, the reason why he puts uh, Ash in that uh, position. He says, I need someone who I can trust and understands war. He says, what it takes to survive and what it takes to win. Right. So to him, that overrides any kind of reservations you would have about this person's stability after supposedly um, undergoing seven months of Klingon torture. It's almost as if he has some prior knowledge of their capabilities, about what they are capable of doing in these positions, Mm -hmm. provided they have the opportunity, which to me started to make me question... Well, what does he know that we don't know? That we don't know. Right. I, I agree with you. And so uh, let's talk a little bit more about what I think you started to get into. And that is, you know, Lorca has an unexplained heightened interest in protecting Burnham. Um, Tyler and Tyler is often placed in the position of her protector with the notable exception of episode nine in which um, he is incapacitated. So it's really her that has to protect, right. you know, uh, Tyler. But there are, you know, three uh, instances, right. that, that instances that we want to talk about in which we see this play out. So uh, the first one happens in episode six, uh, Lacey, um, they're on a way mission to save Sarek, and Ty- uh, Tyler is ordered to buy Lorca to keep Burnham safe. In fact, he is told, don't come back without her. Right, you know? right. That, yeah, in fact, Lorca comes down to the... Personally per- comes per- down. Per- to, to make him aware of that, you know, to state that, to make it clear. He, ne- he needs to protect her at all costs. Right, he says keep her safe and Burnham says I mean uh, Tyler says yeah I'm going to come back with the ship yeah thinking that's what he's talking, talking about, about right? but no he's, he says no I'm talking about her Her. he makes that very clear right. and then in episode 7 this is the mud episode when mud right. comes back for his revenge yeah magic to the uh, to make the sanest man go mad mud comes out of that gormagander <sighs> uh, which is that space whale and he begins to ambush the crew members the only person that Lorca asks about their safety is Burnham. Right. He right. says, is Burnham okay? Right. 
all those other people there's are a, wasted. There's at least seven other uh, crew members that are shot and killed, yeah, killed. by by mud as immediately after you know exiting that 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 space whale, and he only is concerned about her. He's, He's only, only asked con- about her. I mean, there's a there's there the chief engineer is down there, right. and he's only concerned about, about Bird. That's Bernard. right. And then um, there are other um, examples in episode nine, Into the Forest I Go. And uh, Tyler, uh, they're going to go on this away mission to go to to the Klingon ship, the sarcophagus. Yes, to put the sensors so they can do the mapping of the ship when it's cloaked. Right. So they can figure out how to break through the cloaking device and attack it. And so it's just logical that Burnham's going to go because supposedly she's the only one who's been on that ship before. Well, well, I mean, the, if if you don't believe that Tyler is Vought. Right, you know. but but in this case, she's at this, from, from what everybody knows, right. she's the only one who's been on that ship. Who's been on the ship. And Who, so she knows exactly where they should she be She knows placed. the layout. She knows exactly where to place those devices. And so, but Lorca, like, shoots that suggestion oh, down at first. He is adamantly against right, her going right. on the sarcophagus because he said it's too dangerous. Right, it's right. too, it's much too dangerous. But Burnham's able to get him to change his mind because, and while the other crew are really listening to this because they know, you know, what she's saying is correct. And so why is he against this? But again, uh, he she is able to convince him to change his mind. Reluctantly so. Reluctantly so, that's right. So that gets us into this discovery theme. And um, as we stated in our initial podcast, discovery takes on both a literal and metaphorical meaning. This series centers around the Federation ship to discovery. However, it is... It more importantly centers on the journey of the discovery for I'm gonna Ford primary crew members as well as the journey of the discover of discovery for the audience itself. But pl- plus, also one of the things that we keep coming back to that is a main motivator for many of these characters is the sense of exploration, the the intellectual curiosity about the world and the universe in which they live. I mean, that's the reason why Stamets is involved with the spore drive technology. That's part of the attraction that Burnham had to actually being in Starfleet. One of the things that she actually cherishes about the, the her career in Starfleet prior to, you know, the circumstances of her mut- of, of mutiny. But, and, and so there's a huge part of it. And it's also an aspect of how Lorca manipulates these people to to the get them to do what he wants them to do. That's right. So uh, let's uh, look at these four different crew members. Let's start off with uh, Burnham as far as her, you know, journey to discovery. So um, as you recall, after um, Burnham's parents are killed by the Klingons, sorry takes Michael into his household and he attempts to fully assimilate her into Vulcan culture in order to prove humans have the capacity to to be equals to Vulcans. When Sarek made the choice not to allow her to enter the Vulcan expeditionary force in favor of what he thought that his son would one day, you know, enter. Well, it wasn't like a choice. He was given, he was given really very little option. You know, here you have, he's he's given a choice. He's given a choice in that you can either have your adopted full human daughter go in because she has the grades, she's proven herself, or you can leave a spot open for your half Vulcan son. That's your, that's actually your blood. That's okay. a little different. Okay. But it's still a choice, Gary. He still has to make a choice. It's a hard choice. It's a difficult choice. But it's still a choice. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree. Anyway, when um, Sark makes that choice, you see that Michael Michael is embarrassed. She feels as if she has failed him. And she decides to move forward and leave Vulcan with this huge sense of embarrassment. And eventually, she ends up at Starfleet. So that's that's what that's where we begin in the first episode, where we see the flashback of her actually coming into 
um, Starfleet and, and under the mentorship of Philippa Georgia, captain of the of the Senzu. Oddly enough, Sarek, who who had attempted to fully integrate Michael into Vulcan culture, helps her present her to this very human captain, Philippa Joyjo, actually to, to help her out, to help her understand and awaken the human qualities, which is something that act, that echoes a relationship, I mean, a statement that Amanda makes that we see in Lethe when, when we're seeing Sarek's memories of that moment, of that decision, we hear Amanda actually tell her it's important that she go because she needs to she needs to cultivate her human quality, her right, human side. Right. She needs to get in touch with that right. human side. And in fact in fact we see that that although she presents herself as a person who has been exposed to Vulcan culture and behaves in in a Vulcan mindset, the circumstances that lead to the battle at the binaries are her reactions which are all human. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> it's not just logic. And when she kills Takuvma, that is an emotional reaction. That is not a logical reaction. That's right. That's right. Because she goes against um, what she had told Giorgio that they should do. Right. And that is, don't kill him because if you kill him, you're going to make him out to be a martyr. Which is what occurs. Right. So, throughout the series, we see Burnham struggle with its discovery process. So some of those things that she just struggles with is how to interact with other beings, right. how to initiate and nurture relationships, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with people in authority, and how to deal with feelings of love. Right. However, we do find that she is open to this change. For instance, we definitely see a marked difference in her behavior when we compare uh, the way she acted upon her initial meeting of Giorgio and later scenes with the captain. Right. So, you know, that you remember that initial meeting uh, when they do that flashback? She is really arrogant. She is stiff. She's aloof. And she speaks in a very formal manner. But then when you, they show you the more contemporary scenes with Giorgio, there is, between those two women, there is a sense of intimacy, there's trust, there's kind of like this mother, mother-daughter mother relationship, and obviously there's this mentor-mentee relationship. Right. I mean, the thing is, that, and, and, it, and looking back at it now, it makes more sense. When she, Seven years ago, when she's first introduced to Giorgio um, and, and joined Starfleet, all of her reactions to to the Starfleet and Giorgio's pers- personality are defense mechanisms. She's mm-hmm. she's overtly mm-hmm. arrogant right. because she's defensive of the fact that she's just been rejected. She's she's did her best. She didn't get into the Vulcan expeditionary group. She failed, and that the stain of that failure has caused her to lash out. And so a lot of her issues are really about that sense of um, failure that she has, that embarrassment she has about her own abilities. Okay, not so much. Remember, we, but we find out Alethe, it's not so much about her own abilities. It's that she felt sorry. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, know? oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still a sense of failure that is motivating a lot of that behavior that, that changes over the course of those seven years. Right, although we learn that it still is something that is uh, a... a Deep uh, pain, you know that uh, you know that that causes her to suffer all right. this time, until she finds out what, why she really did not get into the expeditionary force. But it also makes sense when you look at how she responds to th- the whole situation of of um, of being a mutineer, and how she responds to. The manner in which she feels she failed Giorgio, it is very much in the same yes, lane, yes, lane as yes. how she felt towards Sarah. That's right. That it was her personal inability to handle the situation appropriately, and so when they call her a mutineer, she takes that on. She accepts the the responsibility. She she accepts all of the guilt 
yes. of those actions. And so she's walking around with that. Well, and, and in Giorgio's case, you know, when she attempts to serve her protector but fails, she initially she shuts down. Right. So, um, however, in episode four, um, upon reviewing the captain's last will and testament, she is, she is reminded... Uh, by a image of Giorgio, a hologram, what her mantra is. And Giorgio tells her, take good care, but more importantly, take good care of those in your care. And Burnham demonstrates this, uh, you know, that she takes this adage to heart in her interactions with other characters, especially with Saru and Tyler. Also, I think with Tilly, with, with she takes a different. Well, that's true. She takes a that's different true. approach to Tilly after being exposed to that. That's right. That message and her understanding. She takes a much more of a mentoring component yes. towards her, more caring component because up up to that point, a lot of her interactions with with Tilly are seem to be she's just a she accepts the engagement but she finds it to a certain extent annoying she's annoying she's a she feels that she's intrusive yes yes and so and she's unwilling and and Burnham is unwilling to open up to that's uh, true to Tilly until after that moment that's true she changes her approach to how she deals with her another aspect of Burnham that we see um that she's in the process of discovery has to do with emotions of love. Right. In episode seven, Michael confesses to Stamets that she's never been in love before. However, by the mid-season finale, it's clear that she definitely has fallen in love with Ash Tyler. We saw this development happen since Tyler joined the crew. Tilly, Burnham's roommate, has become her friend, but they are not peers. Tyler is Michael's peer and displays an acceptance of her despite her past history. And he did that from the beginning. From the almost, very beginning. Which, which, which was another thing that I found interesting before we had this Vok theory because he seemed to be, for a guy who seemed to be part of Starfleet in a major way, he appeared to be a bit too open to to embracing somebody who had caused this great war to kick off. But but then later we learn in episode 9 that it really was all a facade, that he right. really was, you know, suffering because of his past memories, uh but he wasn't letting anybody see that. Right. Okay, so other ways that we saw this relationship between uh, Michael and Tyler develop is that Michael had not known Tyler for very long, yet in episode six, this is that Lethe episode, it is to him she shares a deeply personal reflection on her of her inner turmoil. She tells him, all my life, the conflict inside me has been between logic and emotion, but now... It's my emotions that are hiding. I think about him. She's talking about Sarek. She says, I think about him and I want to cry, but I have to smile. And I feel angry, but I want to love. And I'm hurt, but there's hope. What is this, she says. So she shares that with Tyler. But when you think about it, who else could she have shared it with? Again, Tilly... Um, she's accepted their friends, but they're not peers. But she does feel this connection with Tyler, you know, early on. And then by episode seven, she reports in her personal log, you know, again, this, uh, uh, this quote where she says, as we perform our daily responsibilities, I confess I find some members of my crew more interesting than others. Then she says, Lieutenant Tyler has suffered so much and still maintains such dignity and kindness. I find him intriguing. <laughs> so, um, and then in that same episode, uh, with prompting by Stamets, she admits her attraction to Tyler and the two of them, Tyler and um, Michael, share this kiss. Right. Finally, in episode nine, when the effects of Tyler's deep-rooted suffering 
are exposed. She is by his side to comfort and support him. It is indeed a profoundly intimate moment for someone who was trained to conceal her emotions. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty clear that, that they've grown extremely close so that whatever the outcome of the next six episodes, their relationship or the and, and the ties that they've already developed emotionally are going to be at stake. Oh, definitely. So it's, it will be really interesting to see how that plays out. Right, 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 right. So, um, Gary, you want to talk a little bit about Ash Tyler and, and how he's on this journey of development? Yeah, I think I think a lot of viewers of the show are convinced that he's Vok. We're just trying to figure out how and why. We have modified our concept as opposed to him being a you know, straight out spy. He we now think that he is more like a Manchurian candidate. So he's a sleeper agent. He doesn't even know. He's not aware of he's it. He's not yet. aware of it, but he's beginning to get clues of it specifically after he was reintroduced to Laurel on the sarcophagus when in in episodes 9 when when they were over there attempting to rescue um Admiral Cornwell. Well, they weren't trying to rescue her at first. Right, they were, right. Well, yeah. they were over there to set those sensors and they rest they and in the process they found her found that there was a human on the ship and they went to rescue her. Right. Right. Okay, so um we 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 were starting to get some clues to his true nature because those the 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 images that were presented to him in his trauma when he had that episode of PSTD, he's starting to see that there's there was some kind of medical action that was taken on his body and taken and part how he was modified, he was tortured. And so he's seen that as He's seen it as torture. He's seen it as torture. But but we believe it's probably the process that he went through to change from a Vulcan to a a human right. Right. And then you later on we see we see after they're back on the ship, we see that he is having nightmares. Because even though he's being comforted by by Burnham He's starting to have these dreams in which he's being sexually uh, assaulted by um, uh, Laurel, and that's a little. That was pretty bizarre. Well, I I found it to be disgusting, but yeah. <laughs> and so at the end of episode nine, you know, you see this highly distraught, and he's like a broken man. You yeah. know, he comes to Laurel, who is being. Held captive in on the, the dis- in the brig and dis- uh, uh, on the discovery, and he looks to her for answers. Right, right. But at the time, she only promises that she will not let the others harm him. Which is such a strange thing to say to somebody who has just put you in a prison. Right. And they've she's come- the one who's captured. Right, right. So how's she going to help him? Right, 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 right. Exactly, yeah, so. exactly. So he's in an extremely vulnerable state, uh, which is evident, and it doesn't seem as if it's going to get any better. He's going to continually be plagued by these images, whether in his waking moments or in his sleep. And it's going to, and, and I think that over the next six episodes, we're going to see it revealed pretty clearly how it, things are going. Yeah, he's um, so so. His journey of discovery is that he's got to find out. What happened to him at the hands of Laurel? Right, but what yeah. he's going to find out, I think, is the evidence of his, he, his true identity. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Right, right. So another person who is on this, you know, journey to discovery is Lieutenant Paul Stamets. When we are first introduced to Stamets in episode three, he appears to be an abrasive scientist, more interested in his sport drive propulsion project than other crew members, with the exception of his partner, Dr. Hugh Colber. However, after his DNA is bonded with that of the tardigrade in episode four, we find it begins to reveal other aspects of his personality which show him to be loving, caring, forgiving, and also empathetic. In fact, if it wasn't for him, when Mud comes on the ship to figure out what's the secret of the discovery, and he's using that device to loop back on th- every 30 minutes, if it wasn't for Stamets 
and his empathy right. to connect with um, Burnham, we wouldn't have been able to solve that issue at all. Cause exactly. Because it's, it, it's actually part of the capacity for him to express emotion that allows him to comprehend what she needs to do. That's right. And he also marvels at his superhuman abilities as a navigator of the sport drive and his ability to exist outside of known temporal and spatial constraints. Which we see evidence of in two different ways. At the end of episode four, The Butcher's Knife, when he and Culber are standing in front of the mirror brushing their teeth before they go to bed, we, we see Stamets' reflection linger in the mirror after he physically has walked away from the bathroom. Which gives us the uh, uh, an impression of some kind of mirror mirror capacity. Mm-hmm. I mean, which if you if you're a, fr- a longtime fan of Star Trek, you know that you know that that's a reference there. The second thing is in throughout magic that makes that would make this sanest man go mad. His ability to retain knowledge after every time loop that is repeated by Mud again, gives us evidence that he is outside of time as, as we are used to it being played out. The other, and then there's even a third element is that when he comes out of the spore drive in um, episode eight, he, for a moment, is, dis, is disoriented. And he looks at Tilly and says, Captain, what are you doing down here? When in actuality, everybody knows that she's a cadet. Right. So, uh, and, th- and then there's other uh, aspects of Stamets, too, that we want to talk about. So, we find that in episode nine, he is seduced by Lorca to agree to take on a high-risk assignment. And that's that high-risk assignment where he has to make 133 spore jumps in a short period of time four minutes in four minutes even though it may have serious serious debilitating consequences and even lead to his death right now Stamets survives this mission but he tells Lorca he is withdrawing from the program he agrees to one more jump but and that is just to get them to a star base so they can have R&R and safety and safety but after he does that, he says he plans to seek medical attention to get him back to normal. Right. However, this last jump goes horribly wrong due to Lorca's interference. And from the trailer for the next episode, Samus must now discover what he has now become. Right. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that. And then our last person that we want to talk about is Saru. Right. Saru is more subtle than the others because his, for the most part, we're presented to him as him being, to a certain extent, an antagonist to Burnham. You know, they have an antagonistic relationship on the Shinzo, which is in part due to him feeling that he hasn't, he isn't able to take take the opportunity of being mentored by Giorgio in the way that that Burnham is. And then when her actions lead to Giorgio's death, he resents her for taking that opportunity away from him. Later on, when, when they are reconnected on the discovery, he, although he, he admits to her skills and her abilities, he also is aware that she's someone that is, that he has some anger towards but he also has some fear of in regards to how she responds, that she brings danger with her. And so he, he's extremely apprehensive. And it's not until later on, after he has to first finally admit to these things, that we see that at, in large part, we forget that one of the major elements of his character is the fact that he is from a prey series species. A prey species that is been bred well he's a species that's been bred to be the prey right but he's been bred to live with a constant sense of fear and and being able to identify as a survival as a right 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 right, right. Yeah. as as and and has used that as a way of 
functioning in the world to the point that it actually does doesn't come into stark relief until episode eight when the Pavans provide him with an opportunity to experience life without a sense of constant fear. And it is so intoxicating, it's so seducing that he is willing to throw away his career in Starfleet oh, yeah. so that he can continue to feel this way. It's not that they coerce him into this. It is he cherishes this difference feeling that oh, he finally yeah. has. He longs for it. And so, um, and so he again, he's willing to face charges as a deserter, right. and also keep Burnham and Tyler on that planet with him, Bec- so right. that he can, so selfishly, right. he can enjoy this sense of peace, right. you know, despite what this may mean for other people. Right. So, um, so obviously, Saru is taken off the planet. He ha- even though he doesn't want to, he has to be back, um, and uh, uh, he has to remain within Starfleet. But in doing so, he must now discover how to find peace with um, his all-consuming intrinsic instincts for self-preservation and marry that with his responsibilities um, of being a Starfleet officer. This at this point heightened by the fact that they are in a state of war. Right, right, right. So that sense of discovery is definitely playing out here as well. He's discovering some other things about himself. Uh, definitely. So finally, there the last thing we want to talk about is this act of discovery for the audience. And so one of the things we enjoy about the serialized format of this show is that every week the show builds upon itself and offers up clues to reveal more about the characters and the overall arc of the story. We commend the actors, most of whom are theater trained. We commend the writers, the directors, producers, and artistic staff, as well as the technicians who are able to create such a series of high quality. Is every episode perfect? No. Uh, We've noted inconsistencies and baffling choices throughout the show's runs. However, overall, we truly enjoy the series and look forward to what each chapter will reveal. The other thing we also, you also need to look at is that I think it's true. One of the, one of the criticisms that people brought on the show with that is that it didn't feel like Star Trek. And there is a distinct difference of the, through the first three, maybe four episodes... And this, as opposed to the, the following five, the last five that we've seen, there is a distinct difference in the, how they approach the storytelling, the way they present the story, uh, the characters in those. Like, oh, yeah. like we've said before, Lorca is like no other Starfleet captain, captain we've ever no. seen. We've seen captains who are dictatorial, we've seen that are authoritarians, we've seen warmongering care, captains before. But Lorca is different. Lorca has a distinct difference from all of that. So let's talk about that a little bit more, Gary. And so over the course of the show, um, there are several characteristics that we found in Lorca, like you said, that are different to other Star uh, Trek uh, captains. One, he is definitely a student of war. Right, you know? very much so. Uh, he um, and he is somebody who finds seems to find comfort in high stress situations and being also in the seat of authority, right. but not bowing down to anybody right. else's right. authority. Right. Right. You know uh, what does he say in um, context for King? He says uh, universal laws are for lackeys. Right. But but context, context is for is kings. For the, is so for kings, yeah. so you act you know according to the circumstances right. basically. Right. right. He's also someone who, for whom the ends justify the means. Always. Always. And someone who is able to quickly assess the abilities of others and their talents. Well, and that one's a little odd because I think that he's, he's, been, he's, he's been able to assess the abilities primarily of Burnham and Tyler. And he's done it in such a way that, like I said, you get a sense that he has some prior knowledge of them that allows him to 
see what they're capable of. and Or the know. Somehow he knows. Sometimes he knows what they're capable of. Or, or what he needs them for. Right, 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 right. You know, that, that, that we haven't been let in on right, yet. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So there's something different. It's, it's not so much that he has this ability to perceive people's skills so much as it he has he seems to have prior knowledge of these two particular characters right because he puts them in the positions of authority and he depends upon them more than anybody else right right definitely so um so and also when admiral cornwall has sex with Lorca, which again is highly unethical but again when she has sex with Lorca, she discovers those scars on his back right we see Lorca's violent reaction i right. mean he pulls out a feather and he's ready to kill her however it is not revealed to us how or when he actually acquired those scars i mean right, we don't right, know right. I mean, that's a bit, and it seems like it was a mystery to her too because right. she didn't look at those scars and go oh yeah i know how they got those right, right. she touched it out of you know what is this right and then he reacted violently to her touching those scars right because what's evident is that we don't see him we don't see him tortured in any way no. when he's with Laurel no. that would have given him those scars. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And so that means that they came to being prior to the to th- this moment in time. Right. Which means that if she if she's ha- if she's been a sexual partner of a, of his prior to him taking over the discovery, the last time they were together, they didn't he she didn't see them either. Yeah, and and, and again, so that means that means that it's been within less a year that he's acquired those. So when would that have happened? Yeah, definitely. And I know we said this in other shows, but um, Lorca has all this knowledge of the Klingons. Yes, and, and you, yes, and, yes. And you wonder, like, where did he get all this because, knowledge? Yes, because, because we're told at the beginning. You were told at the beginning. He says. I am the reason why he destroys his ship is that he did not want his crew to endure a life of servitude and torture, you know, um, which obviously would have been they would have short lives. But how does he even know this? Right. Seeing how in the very first episode when it's the, the when Burnham and Giorgio realize that it's actually Klingons over there that they that they've encountered, they haven't had any uh, official encounters with the Klingons for almost a hundred years. Right, right. So we're so roughly a century. That's right. There's been no formal interaction between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. Right. Now there have been some skirmishes, as we said. Uh, Burnham's parents were killed by an attack from Klingons on a Vulcan on a Vulcan outpost. That's right. That has happened. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an ongoing, engaged, political, dip, high-level diplomatic engagement with another, with another state. Mm-hmm. And that has not occurred. So how does he have all this knowledge of the Klingons when Starfleet hasn't had that kind of engagement? That's right. That's right. And then, and then going, going back to this incident where they had with Cornwell, you know, after that incident, he has shown... That he is continue continues to carry a phaser, right. but we don't know if this is really recent behavior or not. Right, right. You know, they they're letting the audience in on this. Right. Oh, he's got this phaser behind here, but we don't know if he's done this before or uh, if he's even carried some kind of weapon with him. He's a man who has his ready room full of weapons. Right. We don't know if he even you know he might be somebody who's always carried some kind of weapon with him so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit i think in another episode uh of our podcast but there is another thing is that Lorca has shown an interest in the abilities of the spore drive that seemed to go beyond its use for the war effort right right i mean if you see there are several different episodes specifically beginning in episode six where Lorca is shown Doing some star charts, some mapping of 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 the space, and we're not really sure exactly what it is leads to. And we see this a, a second time, two episodes later, after in episode eight, and then finally in episode nine, in part of his petition to Stamets to convince him to stay on and do another jump to take them to the star base. After that. 
he promises him this ability for us to do major exploration once the war is over. And he shows them this star map that he's been charting, which part of it is evidence of gateways that he says are gateways to other dimensions. Right. Now, I don't know how he knows that, yeah. but it's there, definitely there. And Stamets sees that he says that these might be possibly gateways to other dimensions. That's right. Now, why is... Why is Lorca mapping that? He's yeah. mapping it because he's been taking the information from all of the jumps that Stamets has been engaging in and using it to create some kind of system by which they could then connect and see where these gate gateways could be. But why is that important to Lorca, a guy who presents himself as a warrior more than a scientist? That's right. So that that's very interesting. And then all of a sudden... You know, at the end, when they do, he does the final jump that's going to take them to safety, Mm -hmm. Lorca puts in an override code with his authorization. And the next thing you know, they jump and they jump to some place that they ain't supposed to be. Right. Or at least not the, the, or well, let's put it this way they jump to some place where they were not planning on going. Right. So so Gary and I will both be the ones to admit, the first time we saw this episode, we didn't see this. Right, right. We didn't see this. It took prior viewings of the episode. In fact, this was after we had actually recorded our review of episode nine. It took other viewings that we saw it because it happened so quickly that Lorca's the one who puts in this override. He overrides the coordinates of their destination, right. which was to go to the star base, and they end up somewhere else. So even though Lorca expresses amazement about where they landed, the audience is not sure whether or not it is actually the destination Lorca intended. All along. All along. Because he seems to, once they've destroyed the ship of the dead, right? once they have this ability to then um, see the Klingons through the cloak. Right. It's almost as though his mission is done. Yeah, he feels like, oh, I'm done. I feel good about that. I could, you know. Right. right. He's relaxed and everything like that. Yep, And so, um, Gary and I will discuss more about this and its implications and the implications of this development in much more detail for our podcast, podcast that will be available shortly after New Year's. But... Uh, before then, in two weeks, our next podcast will examine the role of people of color and discovery within the context of its history within the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Be- before we go on, I want to I hit one more thing about this, Lorca. I think this intentional jump and part of what's been hidden behind, Lor- uh, behind Lorca's motivations is going to be a critical component going forward in the show. Oh, yeah. I really do think that there's more to it, and I think it's been subtly presented to us, but in such a way that the show has shown us stuff, yeah. and we haven't really seen it or understood what it meant, and, and it's all probably going to play out over the next six episodes. So I'm really excited about that development. Oh, yeah. Okay, so it, as Adele said, in two weeks we'll come back with another episode, that one focusing on uh, people of color in Discovery. And But until then, I want you to please continue to try to communicate to us either via Twitter at Star Trek AOD or on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash Star Trek AOD. And if you are listening to us on iTunes, if you pre- I appreciate it if you could give us a like so that other people can find the podcast. We, we're slowly growing uh, audience. Nice. In fact, we've having some tremendous increase in regards to downloads since we began the, the show. But we'd like to see if we could pick up some momentum and get a bigger, bigger number. So if you could give us a like on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate it. And also, we soon plan to post a Star Trek Discovery timeline and would appreciate your feedback to make it as accurate as possible. Right. We're going to put that on the on the website. So we'll send out a, some information about that, too. So it'll be posted on the Facebook page as well. So until then. Live long and prosper.